Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Network 5 Emergency Journal Club podcast, an emergency medicine podcast designed to bring exciting emergency research to you. We are embarking on the mission of establishing a regular podcast which will discuss some of the latest research and publications relevant to emergency medicine and its practice within Australia. We know you're all busy and saturated with resources to further your knowledge already, um, so it's our hope that this instead will be an easy way to brush up on the latest evidence whilst vegging out on the couch, taking your dog for a walk, driving into work or frantically cooking up a storm in the kitchen. Furthermore, we would love it to be a collaborative platform from which to share all your thoughts and feedback from previous episodes and from which to voice your thoughts and experiences as emergency practitioners. We are a group of Westmead-based emergency trainees and consultants with the plan of releasing monthly episodes on the third Wednesday of every month. Each month we are aiming to focus on a specific area of interest. So before getting started, let's do a round the table brief introduction so you know who we all are. Hi everyone, I'm Shreyas. I'm one of the Westmead Emergency Registrars um, and I'm very excited to be doing a podcast instead of listening to one on this occasion. Uh, my name's Pramod, I'm one of the ED consultants trained out at Westmead now, so I'm very excited to be involved in this, it should be a good fun. I'm Kit, I'm also a trainee at Westmead and currently at Auburn as well. Hi guys, my name is Samoda, I'm one of the ED registrars in Westmead, it's so nice to have you listen to us. And I'm Caroline, I'm one of the other um, Westmead ED trainees as well, so thank you for being on board with us today. All right, so this week we're covering toxicology topics um, and I'll hand over to Pramod who will be chairing this session. Awesome, thanks for that intro, Caroline. So, um, yep, so I'll be chairing this session. Very excited for the topics we have um, that we're going to talk about today. So we've got Rachel here, who's one of our toxicology registrars, currently going to be talking about the association between antipsychotics and um, AMI. We've got Samoda, one of our ED registrars, talking about um, digoxin chronic digoxin toxicity and whether or not we should be using Digifab. And then we've got Kit, who's an ex-toxicology registrar, current ED reg, who's going to be talking about an interesting organophosphate toxicity case that he had come across um, a, a few months ago. So it should, be, should, make, should make some good discussions. Um, we're also fortunate enough to be joined by Satish, one of our clinical toxicologists, who'll be chiming in uh, with you know, useful insights from his perspective as well. So all in all, it should be a great episode. So for our first paper, we have um, Samoda, who's going to be talking to us a little bit about a study that looked at uh, dig, digifab, dig levels, and digoxin toxicity in the chronic setting in the emergency department um, from a paper that was done out of Prince of Wales Hospital. Um, Samoda, do you want to take it away? Thanks, Pramod. Um, so my study was conducted by a group led by Dr. Betty Chan, who's a clinical toxicologist and an emergency physician based at the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney. It's titled The Clinical Outcomes from Early Use of Digoxin-Specific Antibodies versus Observation in Chronic Digoxin Poisoning. This uh, study was published in the Journal of Clinical Toxicology in 2019. Um, so just to sidetrack a tiny bit and talk about cardioglycosides, um, they've been around for a long time. In 1785, Sir William Withering used the extracts of the foxglove plant to treat heart failure. Today we see digoxin prescribed for treatment of atrial fibrillation or for heart failure with e reduced ejection fraction. Uh, but its use has declined since the 1990s, and, but we still see patients on it. And since it has a narrow therapeutic index, toxicity is much more common. Um, a study conducted in the US in 2011 showed that digoxin was the third leading cause of hospitalization due to adverse drug events in patients older than six years of age. Um, so chronic toxicity is far more common than acute intoxication. So going back to the paper, the purpose of this study was to see if there's a role for digoxin-specific antibody or digifab in the management of chronic digoxin toxicity. I guess it's an important question to answer because digifab is very expensive. It's closer to $1,000 per vial and it has its own profile of adverse effects and potential complications. And I guess it's also interesting to note that when you're dosing digifab, in the context of uh, chronic toxicity, the amount of vials that you give will vary depending on the amount of digoxin 
consumed and that's a calculation that you can actually find online. Mm, absolutely. Um, so going to this uh, study design, it, it was a prospective observational study and uh, patients were recruited from three toxicology units in Australia. Patients with an elevated digoxin concentration greater than two micrograms per litre and all signs or symptoms thought to be attributable to digoxin toxicity, example bradycardia, cardiac arrhythmias or hyperkalemia were included in the study. Uh, patients were excluded if they had acute or acute and chronic digoxin poisoning. So patients were divided into two groups. The first um, group were those patients who had initial treatment with the digifab and the second group were the patients who were observed um, with expected treatment. The baseline characteristics with respect to the median age, the initial heart rate, initial digoxin concentration and initial um, potassium concentration in both groups were similar. And it's interesting because the decision to administer Digifab was determined by the treating team in the hospital, either before or after consultation with the clinical toxicologist on call. So the primary outcome was the number of deaths that occurred in each group, and secondary outcomes were length of stay, change in heart rate within four hours, and change in the potassium concentration with time. Yep. So going to results, um, from 2013 to 2018, there were a total of 128 patients who met the inclusion criteria. 78 of those received the initial treatment with Digifab and 50 were observed with expected treatment. Um, data were analysed as per intention to treat. So in terms of the outcomes, um, there were 9 deaths or 12% in the treatment group compared to 7 deaths or 14% in the observation group. Median length of hospital stay was six days for both groups and they found there were minimal differences in the change in heart rate and potassium in the two groups. So a negative trial overall. Overall, Which always yeah. makes me a little bit sad. <laughs> I think about all the patients that I've treated. Anyway. So interestingly, this study shows that the routine use of Digifab in patients with chronic digoxin toxicity did not actually reduce mortality or length of stay or cause a change in heart rate or potassium levels. So in other words, patients with chronic digoxin toxicity are likely to be unwell due to multiple factors, not just their digoxin level. So managing other comorbidities and providing supportive treatment play a crucial role in determining uh, patient outcome instead of just focusing on the management of an elevated digoxin concentration. Examples include correcting potential precipitating factors like dehydration, electrolyte derangements or treating intercurrent infection, um, withholding drugs that impair renal function or digoxin elimination like NSAIDs and macrolide antibiotics. So the decision to treat with Digifab shouldn't solely depend on the serum digoxin concentration. So um, regarding the strengths and weaknesses of this study, so obviously it's a prospective study, it's observational in nature, so it's going to have some flaws. Um, what, what did you pick out looking through the study? Were there any big issues there? So the, the authors report that the baseline characteristics for, of both groups were similar, but it, it's interesting to know why those patients in the treatment group um, received the Digifab in the first place. Did they look unwell? Was there a parameter that wasn't measured or looked at in the study? Or was it mainly because the clinicians um, felt comfortable with giving Digifab? On, on another note, four patients in the observation group subsequently received the Digifab um, because two patients had ventricular tachyarrhythmias and two patients had persistent bradycardia. One of the two patients with the ventricular tachyarrhythmia died 11 hours after um, from hypoxic brain injury. And the question then becomes, would that patient have benefited if they received Digifab in the first place? Um, so it's interesting, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess the big query was there was no real quantification about what led them in certain circumstances mm -hmm. to either give or not to give the Digifab. And so I guess that's it's a bit nebulous, their decision-making process. Mm -hmm. So it makes it a bit hard to determine the applicability yeah, absolutely. Of the results, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess another limitation was the sample size. They used 78 um, in the treatment group versus 50 in the observational group. There is a risk for type 2 error as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess the other question and thought that I had when I was reading this was, it all seems a bit futile, you know, given that the test itself didn't really seem to make much of a difference. And by the test, I mean this measurement of the serum to joxin level. 
Do you think there's a role for doing that? So I guess the example that I would put to you was, you know, any patient who's on anticoagulant medication would get routine INRs. And there's certainly a role for thinking about at least doing routine lithium levels on certain patients who present to the hospital. However, in these patients, even when you do suspect chronic digitoxicity by, say, manifestation of worsening shortness of breath, maybe reflective of an underlying arrhythmia, in the absence of an obvious arrhythmic event, is there a role, do you think, for doing dig levels? I guess that sort of brings it back to the ED sort of point of view. I guess um, doing routine dig levels is probably not indicated in patients who present um, with otherwise, like, you know, unrelated present, uh, presentations like for pneumonia or UTIs, unless, of course, they are... Um, they come in with a severe cardiovascular collapse um, or cardiac arrest, then you might wonder if that there's a role for the didoxin in that setting. But I'll leave it up to Dr. Shatish to um, provide his input. Yeah, no, for sure. Satish, are you happy to maybe just explain to us what, what your perspective is on that question? Yeah, no, I think that's a good point, which uh, do we really need a didoxin level on any patient who is on didoxin who is presenting to hospital? And my suspicion would be probably no, unless we have got a good uh, concern about a digit toxicity from a cardiac arrhythmia point of view, or they have got an acute renal failure and they are on a big dose of digoxin and you want to know where their baseline is when they're presenting, maybe I would do it. But as a routine, as Samora mentioned, as a patient comes in with a UTI or uh, a presentation unrelated to digoxin, it's not, I would probably say, we do not need to do a digoxin levels on those group of patients. The other thing that I think the study maybe could have explored slightly better would have been maybe the potential adverse effects of administering Digifat. Uh, what have you found in your reading, Samoda? So uh, patients with poor cardiac function may deteriorate secondary to withdrawal of the inotropic effect of the digoxin. So if you administer Digifat, then you might need to consider providing them with support, for example, with other inotropes. Mm. Um, some patients may develop um, atrial fibrillation with the rapid ventral response owing to the withdrawal of digoxin's effects as well. And uh, it's interesting that the fragments of Digifab are obtained from the blood of a sheep um, immunized with the digoxin derivative. So uh, you may need to take precaution in people who have allergies to sheep protein. The other thing to consider is electrolyte derangement, especially hypokalemia, um, which should be corrected before or during administration of Digifab because Digifab will um, further lower the potassium. Yeah, so it's not it's not really a set and forget sort of uh, mm. uh, antidote. I guess I think that's something we need to keep in mind, particularly when we're using it in the ED. Um, just just want to sorry, yeah, I just yeah. want to mention one more thing, and I think sometimes we get carried away with that. We've got a patient who's got a high digoxin level, and we think they suspect that they've got a digoxin toxicity, and we focus on giving a digifab and not focusing on other supportive care, which is probably in this group of patients more important than giving a digifab. So I think end of the day, correcting their potassium, making sure they're, they're fluid uh, hydrated and if they've got other cardiotoxic drugs on board, making sure that we are addressing those issues as well. And probably digifab, yes, we can throw that in the mix, but we shouldn't be relying too much because that's not going to make the dramatic improvement in the patient outcome, at least for that's what the study tells us. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely an important point to remember. Um, just to end on hopefully a slightly positive note, maybe we should just, for our listeners who maybe aren't too familiar with digoxin toxicity, just wrap up by talking a little bit about some of the current accepted indications for Digifab use. Mm. Um, as per the therapeutic guidelines, um, there are three main indications. So um, ventricular arrhythmias or runs of ventricular ectopic complexes, um, bradyarrhythmias associated with hypotension and cardiac arrest. Excellent. Uh, awesome. So thanks for bringing that discussion to us, Samoda. I just want to throw to some other members of our panel just to see if they had any other questions they'd like to ask. So Shreyas here, I think, has one. So um, thanks for clarifying. I thought that um, question about the DIG level measurement was actually very useful, certainly from an emergency point of view. I just want to clarify a little bit, um, Satish and Samoda and Pramod. Um, in terms of the non-acute setting, so setting aside the patients who present with symptoms that may suggest a DIG toxicity, are you then only measuring the digoxin level in someone who is at risk of having accumulations or in other words, someone with a new renal impairment? Is that basically the only other population? Yeah, I think what my suggestion is we should not be doing a digoxin as a routine screening test when if they are on digoxin, uh, but do it on a patient we suspect they could have a digitoxicity. Either they are on a massive dose like 250 micrograms a day, which is... 
our patients should not be on that big dose or they've got an acute renal failure and we suspect they could potentially have a high ditch levels uh, or they have got a coming in with the syncope or an unexplained reduced level of consciousness or episode of that and now they do not have any arrhythmia you think they could potentially have had a cardiac arrhythmia pres- leading to the presentation um, and yeah i think those probably the roughly the indication i will be thinking but we should not be probably we should be thinking before doing it dig levels as a screening as you normally would do as promote mentioned earlier about uh, warfarin and inrs or a patient with potential lithium uh, uh, a patient who are, is on lithium who is presenting to hospital okay. uh, so satish I, i just had another question and i was hoping you could um clarify for me from the perspective of a toxicologist why do you think um or what are some reasons that you would potentially use digifab in this context and maybe if you, could you elucidate perhaps some of the reasons behind why some of these patients were treated versus some of them not being treated okay yeah no that's a good point and i think we as a, at least i am definitely uh, remember a few patients of ours from uh, from westmead hospital and blackton hospital have been recruited into this study plus also through poison center who have been uh, there few cases we have referred to for, for this particular study i think we tend to focus too much on a bradyarrhythmia as a ditch toxicity which is not the case bradyarrhythmia is usually more related to either of hyperkalemia or patients on a beta blockers or calcium channel blockers uh, more things i will be concerned about is if they have a bradycardia but they've got an uh, like a junctional rhythm i'll be more concerned about it on a patient who has got uh, uh, is normally on digoxin and expect they've got a chronic af but their heart rhythm the rhythm looks more regular on a current ecg i'll be more concerned about it lots of ectopics uh, on an ecg will make me consider that digoxin is maybe a major component in the toxicity for that which unfortunately this study does the specific ecg changes have not been mentioned on that so that's something which will sway us more towards giving giving a digifab and uh and versus not giving it based on those f- fine ecg details and also the patient could be if the patient is not on beta blockers or calcium channel blockers and they've got a bradycardia I may think more seriously about giving a digifab and that which again this study is not able to differentiate that so that those are probably the common ones Uh, or the patient is on again a big dose of digox, uh, digoxin like 250 micrograms and they they've got uh, an acute renal failure which we can confirm from the previous uh, recent blood test which I'll probably push me more towards giving it versus in a patient who is on a, a massive a big dose of beta blocker like metoprolol who has got uh, uh, maybe on a small dose of digoxin and they've got a mild re- acute renal impairment um I probably be more thinking away from giving a digifab on that group of patients. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for that insight. Really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm just wondering like with regards to, you know, any hyperkalemic patient that comes in, we'd often expect a bradyarrhythmia or a junctional rhythm. Um would that potentially be where a digoxin level would become useful? Um I guess in determining the cause of the bradyarrhythmia. Um or would you still I guess treat the hyperkalemia initially and see what their initial response was before thinking about digoxin levels. No, that's a good point. Uh I think we we count as uh, hyperkalemia as one of the toxicity features of digoxin, but that's a feature of acute dig toxicity, not chronic dig toxicity. Chronic dig toxicity with a, and hyperkalemia is usually multifactorial so it's either because of ACE inhibitors or spironolactone or uh, acute renal impairment causing hyperkalemia is not because of a cellular shift from digoxin so our main focus in that group of patients is treating that hyperkalemia with other measures yes we should in that case i would probably do a dig levels but i, I will not that hyperkalemia in isolation is not going to i'm not going to be thinking more seriously about treating with the digifab just because the patient is hyperkalemic i'll be more thinking they have hyperkalemia because of other factors and i need to treat that and of course if they have cardiac arrhythmias which again as described before as a, a junctional rhythm or regular uh, bradycardia or or a, lots of ectopics i'll may think of giving a digifab in that 
patient. Can I just chime in with another annoying question? Yeah. Would you give calcium gluconate? <laughs> I was just going <laughs> to ask that. <laughs> okay. No, that's, yeah. Again, I have given it. Uh, the patient survived? If I, if I, yeah, if I could avoid it, I would, yeah. but I'm not going to lose my sleep on that. Amazing. So if I give it, no big deal. Uh, and there is another study a number of years ago, which is very similar uh, design to this, but that was, uh, this is prospective, that was uh, was retrospective, but quite a decent group of patients who were, I think around 500 patients were admitted to hospital uh, over a number of years, who and they've disc- divided those into a group of patients who were given calcium and who were not given calcium, and there was no difference in the outcome. So I suspect giving a calcium in a patient who maybe has detoxin on board is not a major therapeutic error. Amazing. Awesome. That definitely helps me sleep easy at night. If I, if, if I could, just one last point before we have to move on. Um, just looking, when, when I was reading through the paper, although they've reported the baseline characteristics of the groups as being equivalent, um, I was interested to see that they've reported the equivalency based on median uh, numbers um, in terms of things like heart rate and um, blood pressure. But when you actually looked at the ranges um, that they've reported in those characteristics in the patients who were treated with Digifab versus not treated with Digifab, um, it was interesting to see that the ranges were actually much more skewed in the Digifab group versus in the non-Digifab group. Um, and so I wonder then if also taking into the fact that there was obviously a degree of clinical discretion which said these people need Digifab and these people don't, whether there was actually a subtle signal which suggested that one group was in fact sicker than the other. And if that was the case, then would a relatively uh, par result in terms of mortality actually suggest that Digifab is useful in a subset of these patients um, with the chronic digitoxicity, particularly when you consider that some of the patients in the expectant group also received Digifab and, you know, one of them, at least in one of the cases, it certainly if it was given earlier, may have resulted in a positive outcome. In one of the other ventricular arrhythmia cases, it certainly did result in a positive outcome. Um, so, I mean, I'm interested in everyone's thoughts on, on that as to whether... Because I, I think this paper had two take-homes. One, very validly, that uh, chronic toxicity is multifactorial and, and we should think about the other factors. But two, that Digifab doesn't appear to be effective. And I'm just wondering whether that's necessarily um, valid. Look, I think... Um for my mind, at least, there's two points that are relevant to your question. I think the first one is that clearly this is not a barn door decision to give Digifab in the context of these patients, and so I would always be seeking expert opinion and coming to a consensus decision. And wherever you can, I would advocate for shared decision-making with patients as well. Second of all, understanding fundamentally how the Digifab works in the sense that it reduces serum dig concentrations to zero almost immediately I would have expected that if digoxin was playing a significant role in the pathophysiology of what was happening with the patient currently, then administration of Digifab should have a profound effect. Um, And in the absence of an obvious effect between these two groups, despite whatever minor differences there might be in the median heart rates, et cetera, I'm still not convinced. Um, And that's at least my thoughts on that. Um, Satish, did you have any any thoughts on... I think uh, you pointed to quite an important thing. So it's we're thinking of as a, and all the patients who've ha- been given a Digifab and we've pretty well taken a Digoxin out of question for those, I would expect there should be a significant improvement in the outcome. So if there is none, so that, that just makes us question why we, we, uh, the rational for giving it. We're not, this study does not tell us that we should not be giving it, mm-hmm. but it's just more about giving a bit more thought into it uh, about should we give it or not. And the numbers two is what are the other things which we should be doing in addition or in place of Digifab, which is going to potentially have a better outcome for the patient. So. Thanks, guys, for those really good questions. Um, Samoda, I might just throw back to you just at the end just for maybe some take-homes that you had from this study. So I guess my main take-home points are when managing a chronic digoxin toxicity, correct any precipitating factors like volume depletion, electrolyte abnormalities, mainly hypokalemia, 
um, identify patients at risk of digoxin toxicity. Um, I think that the typical patient is the elderly patient with multiple comorbidities. Watch out for other drugs that impair digoxin elimination, like NSAIDs and diuretics. In chronic toxicity, Digifab is indicated if the patient is in cardiac arrest or if they have life-threatening arrhythmias as per the therapeutic guidelines. Awesome, yeah. Some really good points there. I think everyone can definitely take home and learn from. Thanks, guys. That was a really good discussion. Cool. Move on to the next topic. So um, we've got Kit here, one of our, our registrars, um, who has done a toxicology term, and he's got a case presentation on a very interesting um, organophosphate toxicity. So, Kit, maybe I'll give you an opportunity just to talk us through the case um, Thanks, chronologically, Paul. and then we'll have some questions. Perfect. Um, so I've written an, an abstract in a case report here, um, which I've submitted to a, a tox journal. Um, essentially, we had a 55-year-old man uh, that was found unconscious alongside various chemicals at home, uh, and was, was noted by the ambulance to have a little bit of emesis on scene but to, to effectively be completely unconscious. And they brought him in with a little bit of a chemical fetal but no kind of clear history of exactly what he'd ingested or if he'd ingested anything. Um, on arrival to the emergency department, he did have a chemical fetal that we couldn't really identify. It wasn't convincingly anything. Um, he was normocardic. He had a relatively normal blood pressure. was a little bit sweaty and had a little bit of crepitation um, in the lung, but was quite easy to ventilate and oxygenate. Um, it was when he was taken to ICU, essentially, that he really decompensated. And we considered multiple options uh, in emergency as to um, whether this could be an organophosphate poisoning, whether this was something else completely, whether this wasn't toxic. Um, and we'd actually drawn up atropine in ED, um, but decided at that stage not to give it. Uh, in intensive care, he developed quite a convincing cholinergic toxidrome. So um, your sludge symptoms, your dumbbell symptoms, um, but did become quite tachycardic, which is can be atypical, um, and was very hypotensive uh, with his toxidrome. He actually received atropine on a doubling regimen, so doubling the dose every five minutes, um, reaching 16 milligrams, which is a whopping dose of atropine, um, and, and was put on an infusion and did stabilise from a secretions and hemodynamics perspective. Um, the infusion was then weaned about 24 hours later uh, with a, a recurrence of his uh, hemodynamic instability with quite persistent hypoxia and hypotension. And actually he required inotropic support with uh, adrenaline, noradrenaline and vasopressin. Um, a little bit of a delay to the recommencement of atropine, but on day three it was recommenced um, with an improvement in his symptoms. Uh, and unusually, he actually ended up being on atropine for 31 days in total. Um, it was later uh, determined that he'd ingested a malathion-related compound, which is, uh, I suppose, one of the more common uh, organophosphates in Australia, but, but not something that you tend to see um, uh, big toxicity with. Um, uh, and this, com this particular compound actually metabolises um, to, to maloxone, which is a, a, a toxic metabolite that is quite lipid-soluble, and we, um, we feel that, that essentially um, that's contributed to this, this prolonged um, uh, need for atropine and prolonged toxicity. Oh, wow. So that sounds like a really fascinating clinical course. Um, just out of curiosity, have you uh, sort of kept tabs on the patient after his discharge from ICU? How was he when he left ICU? 31 days is a long time to be spending there. Yeah, indeed. And his, his hospital stay was actually complicated by a number of things. Sepsis, he had lowered limb DVTs, he had a critical illness, polymyopathy, um, that was probably yeah, combined wow. with, with, with um, uh, toxidromal symptoms as well. Um, he, he did make a, a reasonable recovery and was, was discharged to HDU and I don't know whether yet whether he's been fully discharged from rehab, okay. but I, my understanding was that he, he went to rehab. 
Amazing. All right. So for some of our listeners who, um, who maybe aren't that familiar with organophosphate toxicity because we don't really see much of it in particularly metropolitan areas of Australia, do you mind just running, running us through what you would look for? You mentioned a couple of acronyms. I'm absolutely hopeless with, with acronyms. So maybe if you could just walk us through what you would expect to see for a patient um, who comes in with organophosphate poisoning. Yeah, so, so there's two um, uh, kind of domains, uh, I suppose, of, of, uh, of cholinergic symptoms. There's your muscarinic symptoms and your nicotinic symptoms. Uh, your muscarinic symptoms are generally uh, bronchospasms and bronchorrhea, um, meiosis, so small pupils, um, lacrimation, urination, diarrhea. So you're really putting everything out from every orifice, so to speak. Um, hypotension and bradycardia is what's classically seen um, with vomiting and salivation. Um, but then you've got uh, your nicotinic features as well. So you've got your, your tachycardia, uh, paradoxically, um, your medriasis, so, so big pupils, hypertension uh, and sweating. From, uh, and obviously you've got infusion, agitation, coma and respiratory failure. Yeah, wow, it sounds pretty dramatic. Um, I have a few questions. I think it might be easier if we started just from the very beginning of this patient's story because he definitely presents like, I at least have one or two people who present like this every shift, right? Found unconscious with God knows what they've taken. Thankfully, much more clinically stable than your gentleman. Um, I was wondering, how did you get to the bottom of what he took? What did that process involve? Really interesting question, actually. Thanks, Pramod. Um, and actually, something that I think um, requires a lot of digging. So, um, we our initial contact was uh, obviously talking to the ambulance officers that brought him in, um, asking them what they'd found, and they said that he had a big shed full of chemicals, and he'd left some chemicals outside the, the front door as well. And so our our, um, our our default from there was to to speak to the, the police um, and see if there were were any police officers that might be free to actually go to the house and and, um, uh, and explore maybe what, what chemicals he had had in the house. Um, and at the same time, we, we, we contacted family um, to ask um, about, obviously, previous overdose attempts, about whether there's any um, uh, recent chemical use within the house or within the garden, whether he stored any chemicals at the property. Um, and I believe... Uh, it was it kind of eventually transpired that the family had found um, some chemicals uh, around the, the, the garage area, which is not where he'd been found initially. Um, and about three days later, um, we realised that one of those was a, a 200 mil bottle containing um, malathion and toluene, uh, essentially. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and once again, for our listeners and def- definitely for myself, what, what is malathion? Yep, so, so malathion uh, is uh, an organophosphate, um, so a, a pesticide. Yep. Um, and, and is there anything specific about the way it presents that might be different in this situation, or is this just a very atypical presentation? I think, yeah, sorry, I'll add. Malathion is very commonly used in all the head lice treatments. All of oh. them, they have a sm- but the concentration is very, very, very small, so it's probably 1% to 5% in that. Okay. And it's, it's a commonly used uh, uh, pesticide. But uh, this particular case is this patient had a 50% malathion, which is not available anywhere. We don't know how he got it from. My understanding is that particular bottle has been there for a number of years in the garage. And when they, this particular patient, when they bought the property, that was already there. So I'm assuming there's like 20, 30, 40, 50 year old container Amazing. sitting in the garage for a number of years. Wow. So it's not. A, that's the reason we don't see it. Uh, we've never even heard of that. Not even there's no literature. That's the reason this particular case has been uh, submitted for uh, as an abstract, because none of us have ever even heard of that high concentration being available. Let alone seeing a patient with that toxicity. But the one the organophosphates they basically come in in the uh, the most common were the chlorpyrifos, uh, which is which. Uh, uh, Again, it's more likely, we may say, uh, and the presentations are usually, they are more symptomatic much more quickly. Okay. So compared to this is because this melaton is almost like a pro-drug, which has to be metabolized to an active component, which is then going to cause a toxicity, is the reason this particular patient had a much delayed onset of yep. toxicity. And the lipid solubility, you think, contributed to the protracted nature of his Yes, so lipid solubility is basically made this uh, whole course much more extended, which is something similar to another uh, organophosphate uh, 
fention. Yeah. Uh, they both are of both of the melatonin and fention are lipid soluble and they can have a toxicity for much longer versus chlorpyrifos will tend to have a toxicity much more quickly and they tend to resolve much more qu- quicker as well. Yeah, well, okay. It's um it's very interesting especially given the protracted nature of um of sort of what happened. I guess once again I wanted to start back to the very beginning of when this pre- patient presented to the ED because it does sound like a bit of a nightmare situation, undifferentiated, unwell patient in the department. Um could you clarify what the reason was to send the patient to the ICU? Because that was obviously a key decision because uh, the patient deteriorated, you know, in a delayed fashion. Yeah, so so essentially decreased level of consciousness. Okay. So um, when he arrived with us, he was actually intubated uh, already by paramedics on scene, okay. um, and that was um, because he simply wasn't protecting his airway. Yeah, okay. And the reason not to give atropine initially, what do you look for when you're thinking about treating someone with atropine? Yeah, so so again, it's... it's um, it's the symptoms that I mentioned earlier, um, particularly the, the, the bradycardia, the, the, the outward appearance of, of kind of sweating. Yep. Um, so so uh, some of the things that you might target for your atropine treatment would be the heart rate. Yep. Um, so I think you'd normally look, uh, Satish is probably the person to ask on this question, but you'd normally, normally aim for a heart rate um, uh, that's above 80. Yep. Um, uh, similarly with the blood pressure, you're, you're looking to, to make sure that the Blood pressure is adequate again above 80, um, and outward signs of, of kind of sweating, lacrimation. So any of those clear um, yep. toxidromal features, um, you, you really don't want to see. Yep. What else was going through your mind as potential? Because you mentioned this chemical smell. Is that yeah? Is that look, right? it, it, it it was a bit of a chemical fetal, but it was it was it was unclear as to to what exactly it was. It was yeah. nothing that I'd previously smelt, and I have had. Um, Kind of patients with with other kind of organophosphate presentations, or I've at least smelt organophosphates previously, and mm. and, and what does it smell? Wasn't like? familiar with it. Um, People always tell me I'll know what it smells like because <laughs> it smells so bad. But then that's what they say about Melina too. But I never, I just still don't really know. What what would you in, in a couple of words? How do you describe <laughs> the smell? Of it? I think it's it's a very pungent smell. It's actually a hydrocarbon in the in the uh, the compound which is making it smell like that. And I agree. It's basically when you walk into an area, say that smells bad, and there's something bad happening mm. around here. Is what it is. The vomitus and the compound you have, even the clothes, you can smell it. And I think it's just one of those things when you you smell it once, you know this you is know what it when it you is. know it. It's, yeah. But again, on the same note, probably in Australia we are not that our senses are not that switched on. So we may miss it. And this is probably an example that we potentially missed it, that it was organophosphate. But uh, again, I won't just rely on that. But I think more important is we need to figure out what compound it is and try to do our best as an emergency uh, uh, doctors uh, and try to get that compound verified in whatever way. So there are, if there is a label on it, make sure we ask patients usually ask them that at least there's someone at home can click a photo of that a label will look at it yeah but be aware of that if it doesn't really fit in with that is it been decanted into something else and the label may be wrong and this example would potentially put it into that that leg i think it's it's always important to have a, a high index of suspicion for tox presentations because they can be so atypical and they can be so varied it's almost a um, norm sometimes I, yeah. yeah absolutely and so it's to to have um a, a patient with a peculiar smell that you don't really recognize is, is quite an odd thing anyway and i think that should should um kind of prick up the senses to to consider that maybe it might be a tox case Satish, you mentioned that um in the uh in the bottle, there was also toluene. I just wondered if that played any significant role in the toxicity for this patient. Toluene did not. The I think that probably the compound must have had a very small amount of toluene. But again, that's the things we were monitoring uh, at the early stage, looking for any osmolar gap as well as looking for any acidosis. So this patient did not develop any toxicity related to toluene. I can't recall the the, the initial gas, but um, it, it did make us suspicious initially of a, the possibility of a toxic alcohol presentation, and that was something that we considered. Um, but after kind of repeating the gas and, and measuring um, uh, osmolar gaps and so forth, um, we we decided that that probably was unlikely to be a significant contributor to this gentleman's toxicity. Mm. Cool, thanks. I'm just going to ask another annoying question: um, the lipid solubility of this toxin. Toxin. Lipid emulsion? Yay or nay? 
I think lipid emulsion is more for drugs which have got a high lipid solubility and they've got an acute toxicity, yep. not for something which has got a long-term toxicity. Uh, long-term toxicity. So it's, again, a good, good question. So local anesthetic, we know that toxicity is when the drug levels are at the peak. And by giving a lipid emulsion, you're blunting that peak and reducing the toxicity. In this particular patient, patient already had 30, 40 kilos of fat in oh, probably not that but at least 20 kilos of fat in whatever form and there's enough lipid sink there and it's actually a problem which is it's slowly leaching out it's not yeah. coming out quick enough for that to be metabolized and removed from the body which made our life harder yeah so probably not a good thought but again i think it's there is from a lipid uh, emulsion point of view if if this patient had a cardiac arrest uh, and we thought was related to Melatonin, which melatonin does not cause it, but they potentially could be the case. But in this one, no. Okay, awesome. Well, that was a really robust and super educational for me, at least, uh, discussion. Thanks for that case, Kit. That was really helpful. Um, I just want to wrap that up by sort of asking you, what did you take away from this? A, a number of things, uh, I think. Um, primarily that the things that we're taught in medical school don't always apply and the standard presentations for things don't always apply. Um, I expected my organophosphate person to neatly fall into the category of being hypotensive and bradycardic. Uh, and in fact, this gentleman was quite tachycardic, which ironically resolved with atropine. Um, so so I think, uh, and, I, and I do think that, that, that it reaffirmed the notion that, that atropinization for these uh, for these particular Organophosphate patients is vital, actually. Mm. Yeah. yeah, some really interesting points there. Thanks for that. Um, I was really interested in the whole CSI investigation style thing that you guys ran with trying to find the, um, the toxin. You mentioned that you contacted the police to try and have a look around the house to see, you know, what was going on. Did you, given the fact that there was a suspicion of organophosphates, did you ask them to take any particular precautions when approaching the home? Uh, they, they did actually ask me that question when I contacted them. Um, and uh, at that stage, we, we didn't feel... There were other people in the home that were perfectly well, um, and I, I didn't particularly feel that there was any need for them to, to, to gown up or or take any special precautions, but obviously, um, uh, you know, if they're handling chemicals, they should be wearing gloves and so forth. And I told them that we were looking for, for potential chemicals. I think from a precaution point of view, I think that's a good point. Uh, so even if we are looking after a patient in hospital with potential organophosphates, I think a normal PPE is enough to, uh, to protect ourselves. So make sure we've got an impervious gown. That's, that's the only additional thing we should be thinking of if accidentally they vomit on us it can be absorbed through skin so that's the only thing if a police went in and looking for it they should have a gloves on and if there is no spillage they're not cleaning that part they should be safe but at, at times for other things where we're thinking there is a dangerous chemical out there you what we could ask is a hazmat to be involved and that can, they can help us identify the chemical as well. So a number of years ago, we had something similar again, a, a garage, a car, someone drank something from the garage. We had no idea about it. And uh, Hazmat investigated that for us, and they came out to be, the patient had a phenol, which again, a, a compound which is not very commonly used, uh, and they, but at least they were able to confirm that compound, and we were able to manage the patient appropriately. Hazmat is another option which we could ask for. Thank you, that's really interesting. Can I just ask a really beginner question, because I've never seen organophosphate toxicity, but did look it up last night, knowing that we were going to have this discussion, and I saw something on praladoxine, which I don't know much about. Um, I knew you were going to ask that. I knew <laughs> it. But um, just, yeah, from a complete beginner perspective, would you be able to shed some light on what that might be used for? Yeah. Okay, that's a... Again, I think I wish we could say it. no, it's not needed. Uh, but unfortunately, all the textbooks and some literature just still comment on that, that we should be giving it. Uh, there's been a couple of studies done. One showed no improvement and the other ones showed potential uh, adverse effects of giving oxymes in a patient with uh, organophosphate or toxicity. So our recommendation currently is speak to us. And we may do it on a case-to-case -case basis, but uh, from a 
textbook point of view, from your exams point of view, unfortunately, you have to mention, <coughs> and I would probably say consider rock signs in a patient with the tox uh, with the organophosphate toxicity and seek advice, uh, expert advice. But very rarely would we give oxymes. Interesting. Just to be clear, how does it actually work? Uh, in theory, it's uh, basically what uh, it causes, uh, uh, prevents the aging process of uh, uh, organophosphate uh, combining to the uh, cholinesterase. So uh, it it's initially it's it's a it's the bond is not very strong but over a period of a few hours it gets much more stronger and it's almost uh, unable to be uh, separated off and oxymes help in that process of separate prevent that aging and prevent help it separating off the anticholinesterase is that why you didn't consider it in him later down the track when he was still requiring the atropine and everything else? Because by that point, maybe was it too late? Or um, again, I think the only time we may consider is uh, uh, is with chlorpyrifos, which we know this tends to age, uh, and, and aging has got a much effect, a much significant effects. Uh, melatonin and as well as fention, they usually do not. The aging is not the major major component of the toxicity. It's more because they've got a much longer half life because of lipid solubility is what is causing a problems. Thank you. Some super interesting points brought up there. Thanks, guys, for bringing that case to our attention. It's really interesting. Some really good learning points. Okay, so we've got uh, Rachel here, one of our toxicology registrars, who's going to be talking to us a little bit about a paper that discusses the relationship between antipsychotic use and acute coronary syndromes. Um, Rachel, do you want to take it away and give us a bit of a summary about what you found? Okay, so this was a systematic review looking at antipsychotic use and the risk of myocardial infarction. Um, and then their objective was to determine whether or not antipsychotics use would affect the risk of MI. Um, so basically, it's a systematic review. They looked at the Cochrane Library, PubMed and EMBase up to about July 2015 um, with keyword search, antipsychotic agents, antipsychotic drugs, antipsychotics and acute coronary syndromes. Um, and they identified about 1,428 potential papers um, and in the end included nine observational studies, um, which of which three were case control studies, two were cohort, there were two case crossover. There was one self-controlled case series and then one self-controlled case series and case control design. Um, and basically the result, the main result of this was that antipsychotic use um, significantly increased the risk of MI mm. uh, with an odd ratios of about 1.88. Now, unfortunately, there was quite a lot of heterogeneity in the results. And the interesting part comes in the subgroup analysis. So um, there was obviously trends in MI in all the cohort studies and a significantly increased risk um, with MI with amisulpride as a specific agent. Yep. Um, and there were two studies that found that there was associated dose-dependent increase in MI risk um, with a significantly higher risk in patients with schizophrenia or dementia, but not the mood disorders. Now, the really interesting bit is that the association between antipsychotic use and MI risk weakened over time. So the highest risk was those within 30 days of treatment, um, and then it gradually decreased at 60 to 90 um, days. So it was a more substantial MI risk in those short-term uses of antipsychotics. Yeah. And just to clarify, it's a dose every day for those 30 mm. days. Yep. So it was a okay. treatment. Yeah, so that was the most sort of... Uh, pronounced sort of um, interesting result from this. Um, so their discussion basically was that all antipsychotic medications um, were associated with moderate risk of MI. Um, and they had a couple of uh, theories. So obviously the weight gain and the metabolic risk associated MI, but yep. 
um, interestingly, it was decreased after 30 days of use. Yeah, and that is interesting because you would expect some of that metabolic syndrome-y kind of picture that often mm. these patients develop to increase over time and prolonged use. Did they yeah. have a reason as to why that might be the case? No, they didn't really give a reason as to why. Um, but they, yeah, it was just you'd expect it long-term, but it was surprisingly only after 30 days and decreased at the 90-day mark yeah. um, for risk of MI. Um the amisulpride is probably a bit more obvious. So amisulpride acts on the D3 receptors, which has expression in the heart and the peripheral vascular system, which can increase the atherosclerosis formation. Mm. Um, and in general, the antipsychotic um, medication activates the 5-HT2A receptors, which again can increase um, atherosclerosis in the coronary arteries. The only thing that they said with the lower risk at longer term is they think it might be related to tolerance and cross-tolerance to antipsychotic drugs. Okay. The only sort of theory that they put through. And that. they thought that would explain why the overall MI risk decreased over time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so that was their theory about why. Okay, that's really interesting. So are they purporting that you become, or a patient rather, becomes resistant to the potential metabolic side effects of antipsychotics over time? Is that sort of what you're saying, that they that the paper is sort of purported as a potential mechanism for why that risk decreased? Um, I'm not entirely sure in terms of like receptors and atherosclerosis, but that's what they just said, is mm. that maybe they just become more tolerant to the drugs. Yep. So that's why their risk decreases. Yeah, super interesting. Mm. Um, on your read-through, what did you identify as some strengths and weaknesses of the study? Uh, so obviously the strength is that it's a systematic review, which makes it a bit more of a higher-level evidence. Um, and there were multiple studies involved instead of looking at a single study. Now, unfortunately, they were all observational studies, or um, which means that that's sort of not a very high level of evidence. Um, and the study and the systematic review did show a large amount of heterogeneity between all the studies itself. Um, they also didn't take into account the patient's baseline. Mm. Um, so obviously, they had different of patients on these antipsychotics that, you know, patients with schizophrenia, patients with dementia, patients with mood disorders. So all of them were included in the same study. Um, and as you all know, patients would have different risk of cardiovascular disease to start with. So all the schizophrenia patients would probably have more medication co-use, that smoke, alcohol, all of that, and none of that was adjusted for in this study. Okay. Um, so a lot of potential confounders. Lots of potential confounders, yep. um, which is probably the main weakness um, and they didn't really quite in terms of specific subgroups they didn't say like typical versus atypical and only one of the studies had individual drugs which was the amis the one with the amisulpride yeah so okay all right um yeah look i found the paper really interesting and just from my mind at least in, my, in the clinical context that i practice i don't normally prescribe antipsychotics uh as uh, dose regime that patients should continue outside the hospital. The main reasons I use antipsychotic medications is for sedation purposes um, or for the treatment of sort of psychomotor agitation. Um, do you think this study changes that as the most common use? What's your perspective on that? And Satish, I'll probably get your opinion on this as well. Um, should this change how I use my antipsychotic medications for control of behavioural changes in patients? I think an ED wouldn't really matter too much because you're only giving one or two single doses. Mm -hmm you're not looking at that sort of longer-term effects. Um, so I don't particularly think that will change it, but it probably will change if, say, um, someone who's recently started on an antipsychotic comes in with chest pain, then you'd you know, have a higher sort of risk to think, OK, could it be an AMI, like as a risk factor that you consider? OK. All right, yeah, that's actually a, an interesting second thought that I had as well. Um, how would this factor into your risk stratification for patients who you're working up for acute coronary syndrome? And I guess the tricky situation would be in a patient who has chest pain, who's recently had um, been commenced on antipsychotics, say, two or three weeks ago, uh, has negative serial troponins and normal ECGs. So you're thinking disposition might still be discharged. Is that someone that you would be considering talking to the cardiologists about maybe getting expedited follow-up for? Is that how this would change? Um, I think it still be a risk stratification. Yep. So consider it like a risk factor, like smoking, like you mm. know, uh, alcohol or cholesterol or diabetes you can consider it as an extra risk factor on top and then um, obviously if they've got serial negative drops no ongoing chest pain you'd supposed to probably send them home but maybe think about uh, like a cardiology follow-up yeah awesome. Satish, what were think, you yeah no, i think i agree with you but these patients are a high risk patients anyway yeah. so yeah. psychiatric uh, illness is along with that so the co issue is the compliance and 
reliability or follow up so i think it's worth probably having a higher threshold for either keeping them in or making sure we organize a close follow up which i think from our point of view it would be a rec follow up which we should be organizing before they go home mm-hmm. uh, and i agree a discussion with the cardiology would probably be more appropriate in a patient especially if they've recently been started on antipsychotics i think that's probably a good thought yeah it's an interesting take home point for me definitely um i think the other thing that we should probably just very briefly mentioned given that this is the toxicology is the theme for this podcast amisulpride just sounds like the worst because it's also <laughs> very high risk for long qt as well so a very highly tosatogenic drug from that perspective too just for our listeners who may not be necessarily familiar with their antipsychotics um so you know it sort of piqued my interest when it was mentioned once again in this study i presume it must be very efficacious in the treatment of positive and negative symptoms in the context of psychosis which is why it's still being used but it is very it's one of those drugs that you do learn about concerns with tosards and long qt um as part of that very long list that i'm sure everyone will learn from their fellowship exams yeah, i think uh, from a it's a good point i think i, I definitely amisulpride is high on the list when you're concerned about tosards and i think oh, pretty well all other antipsychotics give you tachycardia as well uh, especially in an overdose setting because they got a an significant anticholinergic features of that versus amisulpride does not have any effects on tachycardia so it's Tachycardia is protective in uh, a setting of a prolonged QT uh, and prevents us from having a t- uh, for a patient having a tosards versus amisulpride does not cause the tachycardia. The only other drug which comes in a similar picture is uh, citalopram, which again is a SSRI, but it does not cause pro- uh, tachycardia, but it does cause prolonged QT, and that's a high risk of uh, uh, VTs, uh, tosards and VTs and VFs as well. So. Just, just those are. I agree. It's just yeah, just a, give a big aside. red flag when when you see a patient on amisulpride or they, especially if they've taken an overdose, I'll be more concerned about it compared to say quetiapine or risperidone or uh, other antipsychotics. Yeah, super interesting. Um, so Rachel, it's always hard to apply these studies to ED. I find at least I don't really know what to make of it. Um, and I guess the most that I could take away from it was adding it to that increasingly ever growing list of things to be scared of when people present with chest pain just another risk factor to add to the list um was there anything else that you sort of took away from this paper um not really as as you probably mentioned um just at increased risk to consider it as another risk factor and i mean schizophrenic patients already have like multiple risk factors to start with and so recent starting of an antipsychotic you just mm. need to be okay there's another thing going on as well that you need to consider. Yeah. It's a higher, like, in terms of your risk stratification for chest pain. Definitely. And I think the other thing is that antipsychotic administration is not necessarily a benign treatment course, and mm-hmm. it does have both short-term and long-term complications. So when we are thinking about giving that dose of droperidol to that patient in RED, it is worthwhile just having this sort of dinging in the back of your head just so you're aware that it is a thing that you need to be thinking about. I'm, I'm going to play a devil's advocate. I think, I think the... The thought that we should, cons- you know, have some consideration before we prescribe an antipsychotic is always going to be valid, because regardless of whether it's cardiovascular or whether it, or rather ischemic, whether it's ar- arrhythmogenic or whether it's related to the, you know, variety of other potential secondary complications of these drugs, we know that they're not benign drugs. So that's definitely something to bear in mind. But I think that this paper again really uh, sort of reflects the issue of a systematic review only being as good as the papers that that comprise it and the evidence here was very poor i think um significant heterogeneity between the studies but also the fact that when you dig into the paper there was really no um very little detail as to how the patients were controlled and and what the degree of matching was um as far as i could ascertain other than in the self-controlled trials most of the other studies weren't comparing schizophrenic patients on antipsychotics with schizophrenic patients not on antipsychotics, um, which would ethically probably be a very difficult thing to do. But then it raises the question, is this, are we actually looking at an effect of the drug or are we looking at the fact that these are extremely vulnerable patients, very comorbid patients as it is, and so those patients are very prone to getting... Uh, ischemic heart disease and when we when we look into like uh, i think there's a couple of things that potentially support that looking looking through the um the evidence in this paper um firstly the fact that that somehow the risk has peaked in 30 days and then dropped away 
I agree, uh, like, sure, that there could be some degree of tolerance to the drug, but if they're, you know, some of these biological explanations that they've come up with that um, maybe it's causing atherosclerosis, sure, the drug might become tolerant, but that atherosclerosis isn't going away, so it doesn't make sense to me that the cardiovascular risk would then just miraculously drop. And similarly, the fact that, Although, again, they've said, they've said that potentially, you know, people also on mood stabilizers might have a cardioprotective effect from the mood stabilizers. I think it's interesting that they've they've only found the association um, for, of high ischemic risk in schizophrenic patients and in dementia patients, but not in the mood stabilizer group. Um, and I think that we can reflect based on our clinical um, work that dementia patients very rarely just have dementia. They often have a very long list of other comorbidities. Schizophrenic patients often... Um, are also very otherwise medically unwell, often have concomitant you know, recreational drug use. Whereas mood stabilizers, sure, they, some of the, that subgroup have those issues, but some of them, many of them don't, um, and so are probably a more benign population. And so I, just, I really question whether we can take home from this study that, that we need to really seriously think about antipsychotics as a cardiovascular risk factor. I think, sure, we should... We should look at oh, this patient is a schizophrenic, or oh, they're you know they're a chronically unwell patient, potentially not a very reliable patient, um, potentially more comorbidities than are listed on the medical record. Um, but am I going to change my practice? Probably not, because as Satish already alluded to, my risk threshold for these patients is already high. So I don't think that the um, the this paper is changing anything in that regard. Yeah, I think that's some really good points there. I think um, definitely one of the weaknesses of a systematic review is the papers that are included in it. And the very nature of the conclusions that this paper is trying to draw makes randomised control trials unethical, I agree. Um, and so the inferences that they're drawing are tenuous. And I, I think one of my uh, bugbears is when they do try to explain tenuous associations with physiology um, uh, and, and pharmacology that's not really well validated. And I think that's part of maybe what's happened here. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, the, my take-home messages, you're right, are probably behaviours that I was doing anyway, but it is just a little, a little tag-on to add to, to these patients who are on antipsychotic treatments. Uh, Rachel, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, like, I agree. As I said, the weakness is that they're all observational and there's lots of confounding factors because they didn't, you know, control for the patient cohort. But unfortunately, this is one of those things where you can't do a randomised controlled child. It's all just going to be observational because you're looking at a side effect of the drug. Um, so this is probably the quality that we're going to get for these sorts of, like, looking specifically for this anyway. Um, so, yeah, like, as, as it's probably just to say, you know, if someone's recently started on antipsychotic, just to think about as a higher risk of MI would be sort of the take-home, I guess. Yeah, and look, I 100% agree that having that notion in the back of your mind I think is probably a really useful take-home from this paper, Um and and look, I'm not I'm not I think the authors are doing their best with a difficult area because as you said, you you can't do a randomized control trial here. The evidence is poor. They've done the best that they can to mash the evidence together into something coherent. But um and 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 so having that cognitive awareness is certainly very useful. Um I just I'm not convinced yet that that's changed much for me practically. Yeah, no, I think that's some very interesting points and I think probably a good place to end on because there were some good take-home messages there as well um yeah so thanks for that rachel it was a really interesting uh interesting presentation
So thanks everyone for those contributions. Um, that was a great first episode. I think a lot of really interesting points brought up. Um, for our listeners, we're going to introduce a new segment at this stage called Kit's Interesting Facts. I'm going to throw to Kit to give us an interesting fact to think about until the next episode comes out. Thanks, Pramod. Something that I discovered this week, so we all know the Nobel Prize, right? essentially established by Alfred Nobel as an apology for dynamite, right? There's also the Ig Nobel Prizes, and they're something that's designed to make people think. And there's one man that's won both an Ig Nobel Prize, a kind of comical prize, and a Nobel Prize. And his name is Andre Geim. And interestingly, um, his, his Nobel Prize was uh, essentially uh, a, a, an accident, much like some of the greatest discoveries, i.e. penicillin. Um, he was playing around with a pencil lead and threw, was sticking some sticky tape on the, on the end of the pencil lead and threw this in the bin and decided afterwards that maybe it was a good idea to look at this um, under a microscope. And that was the discovery of graphene, which is vitally important, including in medicine today. Amazing. Something to take away for the rest of the month. Awesome. Thanks, Kit, for that. Um, and thank you, everyone, for sticking it through to the end of this podcast. I um, really hope you enjoyed listening to our wonderful speakers um, and want to thank them all as well for taking some time out to talk to us today. Um, and we hope that you guys took something valuable away from the episode. Um, you can find all the links uh, to today's papers in our show notes, where you'll also find our email, uh, westmeadjournalclub at gmail.com. Uh, please send us an email and let us know if you have any thoughts on the episode. And obviously, we're always looking for new contributors. So if you're keen to put your hand up, get in touch with us. We'll be happy to get you involved with the team. Um, and we hope to be in your ears again in a month's time. Thanks. <laughs>